Before we go to the text, we are celebrating the Lord's Supper next Sunday, so we'll read uh, the first part of the form at this moment. That's on page 603 in your book of praise. Let's turn now to the Word of God again, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, which is the text. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. If you keep your Bible open, I will be referring to some of the verses preceding our text as well from time to time. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what if things didn't do what they were supposed to do? What if you you turn on the tap, you expect water. What if raw sewage came out instead? Or what if you planted your garden in the spring and you tended it all summer and when it was time for harvest, the only fruits and vegetables that you found were dead tarantulas? Things didn't turn out the way they were supposed to turn out. That would be horrifying to live in a world like that. What if people didn't do what they're supposed to do? And that can be passive or active. A, a sentry can passively neglect his duties. And in the dawn, when the enemy is about to attack, the sentry can fall asleep, and the, the company or the regiment can be wiped out because he didn't do his job. Or it can be active. Someone can actively do things against their calling, against their office. A doctor, a nurse, a healthcare worker has the office of caring, of of serving to promote the health of their patients. And that's why it's so horrifying when rarely, but from time to time we read in the news, of a doctor or a nurse actively killing their patients. It's horrifying because it's the opposite of what they're supposed to be doing. Now, we live in a world in which things and people are doing the opposite of what they're supposed to do, of what they were created to do. And in the book, The Letter to the Romans, Paul describes a world which is plunged into sin, a creation which is groaning in bondage to corruption. He describes a humanity which has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everything's broken, and everyone is broken. And we're doing the opposite of what we were made to do because we were made to worship. We were made to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But we're not doing that. And that's the source of all misery. Now, as Paul goes through the letter to the Romans, we see in the letter, the same dynamic that is reflected in the Heidelberg Catechism. He begins by telling the bad news about sin and about the fallenness of the human race. Then he proceeds to talk about the solution, how God has dealt with sin in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he's gone through the book up to chapter 12, he has already described the, the sovereign, gracious acts of God in Christ through which he has chosen to set his love and grace upon unworthy sinners to forgive them, to heal them, to sanctify them, and to transform them. And so he's gone through the, the first part about sin, 
And he's going through the second part about how God deals with sin, about grace. And so if sin was the problem, and if God's grace shows us the way out of the problem, then what's next? And so the third part of Romans deals with thankfulness. Sin, salvation, service, guilt, grace, gratitude. That's the dynamic in Romans, and we're getting to that as we come to chapter 12. Because here the apostle is saying, look, because of Jesus, because of what he did, because of what he has done to you and for you, you can now begin to do what you were made to do, to be what you were made to be. And what were you made to do? You were made to worship. And now you can again. And so he begins our text with those words, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Notice how Paul applies all the teaching of the previous 11 chapters. He doesn't say to the believers, hey, Christian, you better be good or you're going to go to hell. That's not what he says. This is what he says. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. This is how you get to live now because of what Jesus has done. Look what God has done. Look who God is. And if you still got your Bible open, just, just go back and scan back to verse 32 of the preceding chapter. 11.32. Paul has described the situation. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Why would God do that? Why would God have mercy upon unworthy sinners? And Paul doesn't know. And that's why he says in the next verse what he says. In verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Paul cannot fathom God's sovereign grace, God's electing love. He can't comprehend it. He can't cut it up and dissect it and put it under a microscope and figure it out. All he can do is fall down and worship. And so that's what he does. Look at verse 36. He worships. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. And now he appeals to his readers, to the churches. He says, listen, I appeal to you, brothers, by the sovereign mercies of God. Do the same thing. Have the same reaction. Fall down and worship. Now, in Paul's time, if you said to anybody that you were going to worship, Worship would be unthinkable without the sacrifice of an animal. Now, we're on the tail end of 2,000 years of Christianity, and the Lord Jesus brought the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. So for us, it's absurd to think of the elders dragging a goat into the church and, and the pastor slitting its throat and sacrificing it in front of the, the congregation. It's, it's, it's for two millennia that has been something which is just out of our minds as Christians. But back when Paul was writing this, worship and killing animals went together. 
you had to bring a sacrifice. And so Paul tells his readers what kind of sacrifice a Christian can bring, a new, totally different idea of sacrifice altogether. He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, the word present, the verb present there is, is in a verb, a form of the verb in the Greek, which, which indicates not just a single act, but it's just an ongoing thing. This is what you do. This is who you are. You are always presenting your body as a living sacrifice. And the word sacrifice here in our text is not just sacrifice in general, not just an offering, but the word indicates a total and a complete and a whole sacrifice, the whole thing literally going up in smoke. So he's calling Christians to an ongoing, never-ending, always continuing act of total dedication to worship with nothing held back, just giving everything we are, everything we, we, we have, giving it to worship as a sacrifice to God. Now, when you bring a sacrifice, you bring it in the temple. And which is the temple? What temple do we bring our living sacrifice in? Well, what does Paul write to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, 19? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And so the bodies are brought as living sacrifices, and the body is also the temple of the Holy Spirit in which we bring that sacrifice. So you, all of you, your body, your heart, your soul, your mind, you're a living temple. The Holy Spirit of God dwells in you. Just like in the Old Testament, the glory of God descended upon the tabernacle and filled the Holy of Holies. That holy Shekinah glory is in you today. He descended upon the church at Pentecost, and he remains living in the church and in each living member. And so you, body, heart, soul, mind, strength, all of you, we're called to give ourselves as an act of continuous worship, holy and acceptable. Holy and acceptable. You know, holy means set apart to God, reserved for that single purpose of worship. The Old Testament temple was holy. It was set apart for his worship. The priests couldn't use it as a barn for six days of the, of the week or as a latrine, and then on the seventh day use it for worship. That would be blasphemy. It was holy. It was set apart. And so we, we are called to be holy, to be set apart, not just on Sundays during the worship service, not just when we're reading the Bible around the table of the family, but all the time. Set apart for God's worship and acceptable to God. That means God's the one who decides the standards. God's the one who decides how he is to be worshipped. We don't get to make that up ourselves. We do not in, uh, indulge in will worship, in, in worshipping according to our imagination. But what does the apostle say? Hebrews 12, 28, Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. 
So holy and acceptable worship. And then the apostle continues, this is your spiritual worship. And this is a tough one for the translators because the word spiritual is kind of hard to communicate in English what it means. And if you have an older translation or a different translation, you'll see different words. Some, some of the older translations maybe have reasonable worship or, or rational worship. And the reason is, is because, how do I explain this? Well, th- let's, let's do a little bit of English grammar first. If you, if you take a noun and you want to make it into an adjective, you can add full to it. So if you have the noun beauty, then you can make an adjective out of it by saying beautiful. You add full to the end, and now it's a describing word. It describes something or someone who, is, who has beauty. And that's what we have here in the Greek. Behind that word spiritual is the word logos, the same word we have in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the logos. And so that's the word here, but it's not the noun. It's the adjective. It's the adjective made from logos, so we could translate it is your logos full worship, which is worship in spirit and truth. And we could even translate, which is your Christ full worship. That's the idea here. So what is Paul saying? Well, he's saying that this kind of worship is not just mere rituals. It's not empty symbols, but it is focused on Christ It is spirit-filled with every aspect of our being involved. As we know the truth of God and the God of truth, as the Father of glory enlightens the eyes of our understanding, and as we worship him for who he is and what he has done, this isn't just a bunch of rituals that we're fulfilling. This isn't just forgetting the world and being caught up in some kind of a trance or an ecstasy. But this is the whole human being full of the Spirit of Christ, worshiping God. And it involves everything. It involves our emotions, our mouths, our ears. You think of what the psalmist says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. There's the emotion there. I was glad. It involves our uh, hearing one another. They said to me, let us go. So we're speaking, we're, we're hearing, we're inviting, we're being invited, we're rejoicing as we encourage one another to gather for worship all the more as that day draws nearer. And it involves physical presence. Our feet have been standing in your gates, O Jerusalem, says the psalmist. It involves our hands. The Lord in the Old Testament said, none shall appear before me empty-handed. The apostle says in the New Testament on the first day of the week, set aside a sum of money for the poor. And so when we come to worship, our hands are holy hands and they are set apart for holy and acceptable worship as we bring our first fruits and as the deacons take those first fruits and, and offer them to the needy in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is worship. And we lift up our hands in the holy place and we bless the Lord and we clasp our hands in reverence as we bow our heads to pray. And we welcome other believers with the right hand of fellowship. And we greet one another with a holy kiss or perhaps in our culture, a holy hug. And our hearts are involved. 
The sacrifices of God, says the psalmist, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. We come with a certain heart to worship. And this isn't just on Sundays, but this is a way of life all the time, our whole body and mind and everything we are is dedicated to worship and to righteousness and to God. Think of what the apostle writes in Romans 6. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And that's why as, you, as we read through the rest of Romans chapter 12, he describes all kinds of ways in which we use our minds and our bodies to worship God by serving one another and loving one another. Now, there are a bunch of texts in the Scripture which talk about using our body to bring sacrifice. I'll refer to a few of them quickly with you. If you turn to Philippians 4, verse 18, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians 4, 18, and Paul says this, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. You see that? Acceptable sacrifice. What's the acceptable sacrifice? It's taking financial resources and using them to support the ministry of the church and the gospel. And so when you give to the church so that the pastor and his family can live and so that the pastor can dedicate his time to preparing sermons and, and ministering to the congregation, then your giving is an act of worship. It is a, as part of being a living sacrifice. And then Hebrews 13 Verse 15, if you turn there quickly, Hebrews 13, 15, where the apostle says, Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So there we have it. The, the fruit of lips, Christful worship is the fruit of our lips. What we believe in the heart, we confess with the mouth. And so as we're doing the dishes, or we're vacuuming, or we're doing the laundry, or we're working in the garden, or working in the shop, or whatever we're doing, and as we're speaking Scripture to ourselves, and as we're singing psalms, then we are worshiping God throughout our day. And then look at the next verse, Hebrews 13, verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. There's another way in which we are living sacrifices. We're doing good. We're sharing with others. Sharing and doing good are acts of worship. When we receive immigrants from other countries who are in need and we show them love and we, we try to help them get to Canada, as many churches do, and I think this church has done in the past as well or is doing now, then these are acts of worship. These are sacrifices pleasing to God as we're sharing the considerable wealth that we have in this country with others who are in need. And that applies also to the little things in life. Children, when you're playing on the playground or when you're playing uh, at school or, or at another location and you see one of the children is kind of aside and not participating, being left out. And you notice that and you include them. You say, hey, come over, play with these toys, play this game with us. Don't be by yourself. And you share the fun, you share the activity with others, then you are doing an act of worship 
that action of looking out for others, making sure no one is excluded, that is a thing through which you worship God. And so we can sum it all up with what the apostle says to the Corinthians. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's our whole life. Every aspect of who we are, every aspect of what we do, every aspect of what we have is to worship God. We are living temples. We are living sacrifices. We are full-time worshipers. The Old Testament temple, as we said, was dedicated to just one purpose. It was a place for worshiping God, and now you are that temple. And so that purpose is transferred to you. In this world, we as a congregation and we individually as members are the place where God is continuously praised. Now, the climax of a week of worship is when we gather with the saints on the Lord's Day in that great edifice, that great building, the congregation of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit built of living stones. If one Christian is a continuous worship center of worship activity, then the gathered congregation of many Christians is an even greater and higher and deeper and more intense act of worship. It is a taste of heaven itself. And that's why the Apostle Paul says what he says in Hebrews chapter 10. He says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near, because now we're rehearsing and we're growing and we're learning our parts for that day when it will become perfect. And when all the universe will be in harmony again and there will be no more sin, it will just be perfect worship. And what we're doing now is we're practicing for that day. Now, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the essence of the character of the church is that she is a gathered people. The church is not a McDonald's drive through You don't just show up in church. You get your shot of faith to keep living in glorious isolation on your own. No, the church is a body. The church belongs together. The church is the family of God. And the apostle Peter says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're gathered to proclaim. We're called together to worship. And so we pray together, our Father, and we sit together as we will next week, and we eat the body, and we drink the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ together, one body, many members, and with voices united, our praises we offer. We meet together in the presence of God, and we hear His voice, and we see His love testified to us in the sacraments. Now, that is the opposite of hell. The essence of hell is loneliness and isolation and cursing God and our neighbor, but the essence of heaven is fellowship and communion and glorying in God and loving our neighbor. And so, brother and sister, 
there may be a lot of challenges as there have been over the last year and a half, and as there will be in the future. But the call of the gospel is as best we can under the circumstances to seek to gather, to be together in worship on Sundays and throughout the week. And the way we choose to spend our Sundays is a litmus test for the way we will spend eternity. The way we choose to spend our Sundays. I'm not talking about people that are obliged by circumstances, by health or other lawful reasons to be absent from public worship. But the way we choose to spend our Sundays is a litmus test for the way in which we will spend eternity. So brother and sister, in the name of God, let not fear or anger or any impediment, internal or external, prevent us from obeying the call to worship. We need to be gathered together. We need to be in the presence of God. We need to hear His voice speaking in the Word preached. Because when we're in the presence of God, things happen. Yes, we're always in the presence of God, but in a more intense and glorious way when we're gathered as the body, as the church. When Moses came down from the mountain, after spending time in God's presence, his face was blazing with light. Because you reflect what you worship, you reflect who you worship, you are transformed after the image of who you worship. And that's what the Spirit is doing as we gather together in the workshop of the Holy Spirit. He is transforming us from glory to glory after the image of Christ our Savior. And so the more time we spend together in the presence of God and hearing Him speak to us, the more we will shine with the light of Christ in this world. God calls us to meet with Him. God calls us to speak life and light into the darkness and death of this fallen world. How can anyone choose to be absent? Are you afraid of the darkness? Come worship the light of the world. Are you afraid of getting sick? Come worship the great healer. Are you afraid of growing tyranny? Come worship the Son. If He sets you free, you are free indeed. Are you afraid that you're too sinful? Come remove the God who removes our trans- come worship the God who removes our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. Are you afraid of death? Come worship the Lord of life. And when all is going well, and when life is full of joy and victories, come and worship. And when all is going badly, and life is full of pain and setbacks, and everything is stripped away from us, come and worship. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And even if he reduce me to absolutely nothing, if he takes away everything from me, I will do like Job who tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Brother and sister, that's our calling. 
This is what we have been made to do. This is what we've been created for. Every circumstance, every situation, every stage of life, every condition, we must worship, and we will worship, because He is worthy of worship. You know, as we're doing that, it's just going to grow and grow in glory until the day it becomes perfect. And we're going to end with a few readings from Revelation. Revelation 5.11, first of all. Revelation 5.11 through to 14. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. And now chapter 7, verse 9 through to 12. And after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out to a, with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's respond by lifting our voices in worship.